Hello, listeners. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. And you're listening to Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story, and son Andy is our producer. And I want to point out to our listeners that Caroline and Andy are, you know, they uh, head up families of their own. So we're all, you know, t- always talking about how do we do our family? How do we do family? What, what's going on there? So as Caroline and I talk about each family member, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in mind. Now, our podcasts do include violence and trauma, so listener discretion is advised. So, hey, Caroline. Hey. How are you today? I am doing good. We're entering um, our heat wave this year, and it's not going to be as bad as previous heat years, so I'm kind of, I'm happy about the summer we've had. I feel lucky. Oh, I, I feel very, very lucky, and of course, while we're recording today, uh, uh, Maui is uh, still on fire, and it's unfathomable what they've lost there, and uh, we're just waiting for it to evolve and to see and to hope that our nation is going to rally around this state of ours yeah. and make sure that they get up on their feet as fast as possible. Although, you know. Rebuilding the structures is one thing, but how are they ever going to get that history back? They're they're going to have to understand what has been lost. I mean, honestly, it's It's really unfathomable. If you can imagine, you know, the entire, your entire city burned to the ground and your livelihood was tourism. Yeah. it's just uh, heart-sinking. I feel very, very bad. So we're thinking about them as we talk about our case today. And, um, you know, Caroline, sometimes on Hearth, Home, and Homicide, we we end up telling stories about seemingly perfect families who are ultimately destroyed from the inside. And our story today is about a woman named Marie Hilly who definitely wanted to be perfect, but I think maybe her urge to kill got the best of her, but I'm not sure about that. So we're going to talk about it and see what we think her motives might have been. Or was her need, for example, to be perceived as perfect so fierce that it forced her to betray others and live a life of deceit and murder? So she used murder as one more tool in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. She wasn't really a natural born killer. So let's take a look and maybe we'll figure it out and maybe our listeners will have some ideas about that. But first of all, let's talk about who is Marie Hilly. So um, Caroline, you found this case and uh, wanted to explore it. And boy, what a, what a landmine of interesting human behavior this was yes. and is. Yes. So um Audrey Marie Frazier was born in 1933 in Anniston, Alabama. She went by Marie, so we're going to call her Marie. Her parents were Huey Frazier and his wife, Lucille. And I found a census report from 1930 that listed Huey and Lucille as both being factory workers in a cotton factory operating machinery. 
And, you know, Anniston, Alabama was one of those towns after the Civil War that began to be seen as a um, factory town for cotton products. Um, They had foundries there. They had a lot of of factories there. And they were doing very, very well by the time the Depression hit. And they, they survived the Depression a little bit better than some states, some towns within states and things like that. But um, Marie, their daughter, was born, as I said, in 1933. She was a slender beauty with dark hair and a great deal of natural poise as a child. She has been defined as the perfect Southern belle, quote unquote. Well, I don't know what the perfect Southern belle is, really. I mean, I grew up in the South, and usually they were rich people. So, you know, I don't know that it had a lot to do with their personality. A lot of times <laughs> these these Southern belles behind the scenes could be quite the range of human behavior types. That's a great way to say it. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of Southern belles, as they call it, um, are, you know, slender, beautiful, they can afford the best wardrobes and they're refined because they go to, um, charm schools all the time. They, they actually get schooling and how to behave. And now we're getting an insight into why I left the South as soon as I could. <laughs> Her parents both working in the cotton mill in 1933 would have given them, given them a suitable livelihood for a family um, until the depression hit. But it turns out that this family was able to keep on working during the depression. And um, when, uh, even though she was born into the depression and she was smack dab in the middle of the uh, depression, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, what, did she even notice because both of her parents were working in at least intermittently in the factory. And in fact, uh, I heard through a podcast by Dr. Grande, who I listened to, he covered this case and he indicated that, um, that her parents felt badly that they had to leave her with a grandparent so that they could go to work. And they felt so badly about this that they gave her everything she ever wanted and they never said no to her. So she was very spoiled, yeah, very spoiled and uh, spoiled rotten, they might say. Yeah. Um, but I do want to say that most people who experienced the Great Depression, they, they did come up with different coping strategies and trauma coping strategies throughout their lifetime. My mother was one of those. They, she came from a, uh, a good family. They were making plenty of money in Massachusetts and they were upstanding citizens. And then one day the depression hit, everybody lost their job. They lost their house. And my mother and her family had to live in the woods mm-hmm. for months. And a lot of people had to do that. Yeah. And as a consequence, my mother was one of the hardest working people I ever knew and one of the reasons she was working is she never wanted to be without the comforts of middle class. You've got enough money. Um, and in fact, she kind of uh, tried very hard to 
uh, be into the symphonies and the library and yeah. and the arts, and that really helped me. So she lied about her age during the war to get into the Red Cross, did she not? Oh, so, which yeah. is also very common for the era. Oh yeah, right? that's right. She <laughs> she did lie. Which everybody she, did at that time because you needed oh, out. You had to get out. And yeah, all you and the needed boy, was the men that lied about their age to enter the war and the women lied about oh, yeah. their age to get into the workplace. Sure. Oh, yeah. So she did. She did. She sure did. You're right. And um, so, so it's anyway. not totally common to be a little bit devious during these times to get yourself on Did your I feet? ever embellish on my resume? I cannot believe you asked me that. So anyway. <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> anyway. So I'm just trying to make the point that, you know, in some way that Marie Hilly was shaped by the Depression and um, people who call her a monster, a killer, a natural born killer, a, a heartless killer, all these things that she's <laughs> called, you know. I don't, and a serial killer, which we'll get yeah, into. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I am certain about that. Yeah, I think I that agree. she was willing to do anything to go. get what she wanted because, was that because she was spoiled rotten or was that because she feared what she saw during the depression? I don't know. Yeah. Good question. Anyway. So. It has said, uh, it has been said in all of the source material I read that Marie, which is the name she was mostly called, as I said, she more than anything else sought out to be part of the upper crust of society. Uh, she thrived on acting and dressing just like the rich people around her most of her life. She attempted to insinuate herself into the high society circles of Aniston. And if Aniston is like most Southern towns at the time, and to some extent to this day, dressing the part will only get you a runner-up seat in the upper crust tent. And that's my opinion, having been there and seen how it all worked for me. Her parents were doing okay, but, you know, just, I mean, they weren't rich. Uh, they And they certainly were not old money. And old money is the currency of the in-crowd allowed into the deep South aristocracy tent. Yeah, I think um, that's probably still pretty accurate of today's structure. <laughs> probably. They probably, people who have wealth that is coming from hundreds of years of uh, prominence in a family in the South, like the Murdochs yes, um, in South yes. Carolina. See where that got him in the end. But yeah. anyway, uh, coming from the line, be, what's your pedigree? Right. You know, um, they're going to want to see your name. pedigree papers, you know, to let you in. But one thing I will say, when she, the, her parents had a little tiny home, and then at one point they moved to a larger home. And um, she this caused her school district to move. And when she was in high school, uh, she was uh, at a high school that had some very wealthy family children there. Mm -hmm. And uh, she hung out with them. And the reason she hung out with them is because she had been voted prettiest girl in the high school. Oh. Um, and I Which guess that's a big that, honor in the South at that time. It is a big honor in the South. Yeah. It sure is. It's a big honor anywhere, I guess, if, if that's your, what you're important to you. Yeah. Putting out there. Yeah, and yeah, you've yeah. got the natural gifts 
of uh, beautiful face and hair and uh, eyes and all of the accoutrement to that particular pursuit. Uh, I, I guess, it, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know. Well, and that's probably a lot of what Marie had learned coming up trying to insinuate herself into these societies, especially for women in the South at this time, beauty was one of the few currencies you were going to have to work with, right? I mean, you weren't going to have leverage in the workplace or connections like that, that other men were going to want. You had your looks and the talents you had acquired to offer as a housewife, I'm guessing. Oh, I, you know, go watch Gone with the Wind. And, uh, you know, Scarlett O'Hara, her parents had, uh, they kept slaves, they had a big plantation and so forth and so on. And they lost everything in the Civil War, but she didn't lose everything because she yeah. still was this dazzling beauty dressed up in the curtains that used to hang in the windows of her bedroom. Mm -hmm. And she went into various situations in order to come out with her wealthy husband. That's what she did. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she could, you know, she could claim to have a long lineage because she did until the Civil War uh, took yeah. it all. So anyway, back to Marie. Forget about Scarlett. Um, Marie married her high school sweetheart, Frank Hilly, in 1951. Uh, now, he was not a wealthy child. He was not impoverished, but he wasn't wealthy. So that's an interesting twist on what she's attracted to. Yeah. It's not just money. He's this was her man, high school I, sweetheart. I they're both beautiful kids. I mean, they're, they're a cute little couple. Yeah. <laughs> He joined the service to both serve his country and also make a living and then returned to Anniston to work in the shipping department of a foundry. And he worked at that foundry until his death. And Marie and Frank were well off uh, by middle class standards. And yet Frank never held on to a nickel of his wages. And he got a lot of ribbing for that uh, by people who knew him. Marie spent every penny that she made as a secretary, and she spent every penny that Frank made as a foundry worker on clothes, furniture, and cars, all in the upper class price range. So now she's using him and hers. Uh, she didn't marry wealth. She's decided, I'm going to put on a good show using our middle class wealth. Well, it looks she like Frank's not concerned he's not doing any i mean he kind of doesn't seem like he's much different he's spending all his money too so. no it wasn't him that was spending his money it was her oh, oh she spent her money i mean is he she, just kind of hanging out enjoying life i think that he may have had uh, he took a lot of ribbing for it mm. and um i think that anybody who is hard working in a foundry and is not able to get ahead because his wife is out spending the money, it probably caused some clashes and some problems in that marriage. Oh, man. I mean, she was trying to make it into the impenetrable upper crust of the town. She did it in high school. Yeah. She did it in high school. And yeah. she's trying to do it again, and it's not going to work because they're middle class, and they were going further and further and further into debt. And poor old Frank, he just kept, you know, shaking his head like, what can I do? 
um, I can just keep on working. They had two kids, Mike and Carol, and they, they were both born in the 1951 to 1953 time span. But there was a problem. And Marie, uh, you know, she's out spending money all the time and she's got a daughter now and she's going to turn this daughter into a debutante and a beauty and just make this person marry a rich man. She's going to be uh, standing in some tall cotton. That's what she's thinking. Yeah, very but, common storyline, I'm guessing. Yeah, <laughs> yes, absolutely. The problem is that Marie did not like her daughter, Carol, at all because Carol was a tomboy. She grew into a young woman who was boy who wore boyish clothes and was too masculine for Marie. And in fact, later in an interview that I saw with Carol, uh, she definitely was uh, gay. Uh, she was a lesbian, oh. but um, at least she was uh, 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 having homosexual relations uh, in her community, which she was accused of. And she readily admitted to. Oh, and I'll, we'll okay. get into that when Marie starts dealing with Carol. Well, for this daughter. time frame, that would have been a challenge for, I think, a lot of families in the South to deal with. But wow, Marie, probably that probably threw her over the edge. I can't imagine. Oh, yeah. And <sighs> and got her to throw Carol under the bus so far, we yeah. almost never saw her again. Mm -hmm. So Marie was cruel and heartless in how she treated Carol. And in the 1950s and 60s, it was a far different landscape, of course, like you were saying, for girls and young women to dress in any way that didn't involve uh, dresses and high heels. So now we get to dress how we want to dress. Yeah. And uh, but people, those heels. Like, all of my grandchildren cannot believe it when I tell them that we were not allowed to wear dresses, just anything but dresses to school when yeah. I was going to school. Well, what are you talking about, Nana? Oh, I know. They just don't even understand. <laughs> no, no. I mean, did, could I wear a T-shirt that said something, let alone something about my power? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, oh my goodness. So they anyway. They would beat you um, right there in the school. <laughs> also <laughs> legal. <laughs> well, Marie was just not having any of Carol. And in videos of Carol today, she is still true to her style in spite of her mother Marie's efforts to reform her. And I mean that by in the interviews I've seen her in, she had short cropped hair and she was wearing a man's shirt, which, so what? I love men's shirts. I I have no problem with wearing a man's shirt. It's just that they don't fit right because I'm not shaped like a man, but I wish that I was because well, I bet I would. you could. Fit, yeah, it's true that I I've went and bought like boys sizes even like an XL yeah. in boys or an XXL. Like it's just yeah, stop doing that because sometimes boys stuff is better than girl stuff, and I don't think that's right. <laughs> I agree. Worst I ever did with girls with boys clothes in in high school when we were finally able to wear pants suits. I bought some Argyle socks. Yeah. Um, and my my principal caused me to have to go home and put on boots over my socks uh, so they wouldn't show. And I'm just thinking, and that was in the 19, you know, late 1960s, early 1970s. Yeah. So what? Well, anyway. today you can look at it as, boy, you ruffled his feathers. Ha <laughs> ha. 
made you go yeah, today all I the did. way back home. I know. Or, you know, in my mind, what I would do is take off my Argyle socks. You mean these principal man? Um, and I would shove them down his throat. But that I, that would be going on in my mind. That would be what I would. But in my what I would say is, okay. <laughs> Don't call my mom. <laughs> Don't tell my mom. Uh, although my mom probably didn't care by that point. Anyway. <laughs> So Marie was banking on that little girl, you know, that's going to go into society. She's going to come out as a debutante and all that spalderall that Alabama and other states in the deep south were famous for. Marrying a beautiful daughter into wealth is one shortcut to what I'm sure Marie was longing for. But her, this was just not going to happen with Carol. And for that, Carol was abused and she was raised without the love of her mother. Now, one thing that happened because of that, um, Frank took Carol under his wing and he took her fishing. He took her wherever she wanted to go. And he um, took her to Auburn football games, which became a lifelong pursuit for her. Oh, and a, yes, a solace for her uh, after uh bad things started to well, happen. thank goodness she still had a parent to give her that love that you need from a parent. Thank goodness. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about Marie. And she's seeing this and now, you know, she's probably PO'd at her daughter, Carol, and uh, uh, Frank, although she doesn't want to get rid of Frank now because Frank is pulling in half of the income she needs to go out and run them into the bankruptcy. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> the brother, Carol's brother, Mike, uh, he went, he came first. So he was a slightly older than Carol. He went into the priesthood eventually. Um, and I don't know, I see that as kind of a form of rebellion, but, but more likely he and his sister were both just following their hearts. She wanted to be, you know, who she was and he wanted to be who he was, which was, I guess, embodied in becoming a priest. So, or a pastor in a church. So Mike got away with, uh, got away from his mother by going to seminary school. But, uh, I'll talk about that a little bit later on when we start talking about what, uh, Marie is actually willing to do to get what she wants in life. Um, Carol, on the other hand, did not leave her mother. She lived with or near her mother as long as her mother was in Anniston. So, I don't know, Caroline, uh, that's a portrait that I can paint of Marie before I get in her into her one-woman crime spree. I don't yeah. know what else to call it. Yeah, I'll just echo too, like you said, there's a lot that's getting thrown around in the materials I looked at before this story where evil comes up a lot. You know, she's just pure evil. How can someone do these things? And I agree with those sentiments. However, I don't know how much of the, I'm willing to subscribe to like Carol is a serial killer. Carol is compelled to kill these people and she's evil. I kind of feel like, like you're saying it's more of like a coping mechanism or maybe some kind of a strategy for her just to keep moving in this money world that she's trying to get into. Right. She's definitely goal-oriented. Definitely. So anyway, 
Now we're going to get into Marie's, uh, as I said, she's got a one-woman crime spree going, starting now. Frank Hilly was a hard-working man who worked in a local foundry, as I've already said. In the, he worked in the shipping department. Now, I, I think that's a difficult job because, really, he would have been working with heavy metal objects, weighing a lot, and uh, weirdly shaped at times, and he was shipping things all over the world, and I imagine that problems arose on a regular basis that he was called to uh, solve. And Frank was well-liked by all who knew him, and I'm sure he had to deal with the, the overspending of his wife and her constant fights with the daughter, Carol. Um, and by all accounts, you know, he was just kind of a laid-back sort of guy who did it with good humor. and. Um, Frank's long-suffering and, and good humor peace uh, making peacemaking at home was uh, soon about to end. Frank didn't know it, but his wife Marie was sleeping with every boss she had over all the time on whatever job she was doing as a secretary to get raises in overtime. And or just plain out money payouts. Some of these men would just give her money every time she would have sex with them. Oh, Frank was, uh, you know, oblivious to that, uh, this until one day he came home from work at, because he was feeling kind of ill. And he caught Marie in their marriage bed making love to her new boss. So, uh, what I mean, what? God, what a shock. I feel just awful for Frank at this very moment, but all the time. But I mean, because like you said, I mean, he's just kind of keeping the peace. He's loving his children. He's trying to cope with this wife who's not helping him save any money. You know, like I just feel for him in that moment where he's total betrayal, total, total world shattering betrayal. Yeah. Not only that, he's not even feeling good. He's feeling, you know, you know. I mean, you know, Ill. I was when I was reading about what she did, sleeping with all these bosses, and everybody knew it, but him. I know. See, that's and anyway, that's really sad because in a small southern town like this, with a woman like this, reputate. I mean, I don't even think we understand the kind of reputations these people all had, and maybe people knew Frank's a pushover for his wife, like. Who knows? But we all know that those stories and narratives were set in that town with these people. We just know. Absolutely. That. Now, tongues wag in every state of the United States That's of right. America. That's right. And probably all over the world. But I've only lived in the United States. I've lived in several states and everywhere I went, humans will do that. And they do it because they want to know what the hell is going on. We're already in a life on a planet and we don't get, how did we get here and what am we supposed to do? But, you know, talking about it with other people and gossiping and all that is another way of belonging. So I don't want to portray the South as this sort of weird anomaly where people talk about each other, but they have raised it to an art form there, I must say, or they have. Yes. Uh, (laughs) It's very distinct there and it's, it's more refined. I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to be complimentary about it, but it's there. It's more, it's most people would associate it with the older South. (laughs) But anyway, not knowing what to do. I mean, you know, his jaw is on the ground. All he could think to do is to contact his son, 
Mike, who had by that time become a minister in Atlanta. And now Mike Mike had left. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So Mike came home for a visit right away. And he gave Frank uh, marital advice. And he also noticed that his father, Frank, was not a well man. Mm. Uh, At first, it was just, you know, kind of aches and pains. And then Frank started missing work due to a strange illness in his gut and pain throughout his whole body. Now, I take the strange illness in his gut to mean he was probably chronically diarrhea or throwing up. Yeah, or even just sharp pains, you know, muscle cramping in your tummy. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to be at work if you've got diarrhea. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> in in May 1975, shortly after a visit from Mike, Frank visited his doctor complaining of nausea and tenderness in his abdomen, and he was then diagnosed with a viral stomach ache. So, in other words, you've got a virus in your gut. Um, the condition persisted, however, you know, usually viral gut problems, you know, go away after a while. And he was admitted to a hospital, uh, where tests indicated a malfunction of the liver. Doctors diagnosed him with infectious hepatitis. Yikes. Frank Hilly died early the morning of May 25th, 1975. So he's dead now, Caroline. I mean, that's, it's sad and it's sudden, but it also doesn't sound sudden because it sounds like he'd been sick for a while, but the death sounds sudden. And I want to say, I saw an interview with Carol where she was like, yeah, no, it was literally like, he's sick. Then he goes in the hospital. She's like, and then he's dead. Just that same, you know, like it was very quick. So. Yeah. I don't, I don't think our listeners have to think about this what happened here uh we already know that this is a story of murder mm-hmm. and uh we already know that it's a story about marie and that people think she was a serial killer so yeah she's behind his death but frank's autopsy was performed with her permission and it revealed swelling in the kidneys and lungs and pneumonia in both lungs and inflammation in the stomach And because the symptoms closely resembled those of hepatitis, that was listed as his cause of death, and no further tests were conducted. So now I want to talk about this for a minute, because if you have a doctor looking at all your symptoms and putting on your death certificate that you died of um, uh, poison, uh, or not poison, but a, a stomach virus of some sort. Oh, yeah. Or finally, it, I guess it must have gone uh, to worse and it became a um, hepatitis, infectious hepatitis or something like that. You've got that. Then you've got an autopsy and the medical examiner finds all these symptoms that line up yeah. with uh, hepatitis, infectious hepatitis. And so why would they do a toxicological test? Right. It would be seen as, it's again, it's like one of those things where, you know, yeah, how are you ever going to make an argument that says, well, let's just do it anyway, just in case. Like, I mean, if you did that with every case, you would have a breakdown in the structure of that. Well, and they, they, would, they will do it if someone is pointing to a possible murder. But, yeah. you know, Carol wasn't screaming murder. Mike wasn't screaming murder. Yeah. Uh, 
Nobody was screaming murder. Yeah. And part of what a medical examiner will do is try to look at the, go interview people. You know, there are some um, medical investigators who will go out and interview people and they they didn't find anything Mm -hmm. that would point to murder. So, um, you know, Frank Hillary was dead. And uh, now his wife was going to get a bunch of money. And uh, she got a life insurance policy of just under 32000 And I saw another thing that said that there was another insurance policy that he had, maybe through his job, maybe, that brought it up to 39000 or something like that. But another report I found said that she secretly took her, the policy she had, which was $32,000 on his life, that she took that out without his knowing. Now, there's no way for me to present that as fact versus rumor. So I'll just say that based on what I know about Marie, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. But I don't know if that's a fact. And I'd say that's a large part of this story is that there's Marie, what we know to be true. There's Marie, what we've heard that lines up with all the other things we know to be true. And then there's just like Marie. I mean, this this is a crazy story of a crazy life that could be a movie, truly. I think it was a movie sometime, like, it was a movie about her as a mother and a wife and a killer, and I can't remember the name of it. I've never seen the movie, but to me, reading about it, like, court reports and actual reports and interviews gives me everything I want. I don't need to see it dramatized. There's no need to dramatize this story. Seriously. I mean, it's crazy. (laughs) Her life story, both true and untrue, is like, whoa. Nobody ever challenged Marie Hilly about her status as a grieving widow. And life went on. Uh, But we're just going to put a pin in it right there. Uh, And and I do want to put a name on what has happened here. And that is torture and murder in the first degree. But nobody knows that yet. But she got away with it, in other words. She collected the money, and I I don't think it's too hard to imagine what she did next. Because really, if you get into Marie Hilly's mind, what has she just gotten away with? Murder and insurance fraud. So, hey, little voice in Marie's head, let's do it again. Let's do it again. And that was probably the uh, idea that was closeted in that mind of hers. Yeah. Is, geez, this is like a new profession for well, me. Well, that was easy. Yeah. <laughs> Just a couple weeks of. I've got a side gig. Yeah. I've got a side gig. I got that. Yes. <laughs> okay. So uh, she's going to do it again. So we'll get that, you know, Frank, God bless you. Uh, and more about you later. But in the meantime, you were crime number one that we know of. That we knew, There probably yes. were some others, but that we know of. Uh, so here we go with crime number two. Marie Hilly turned her sights on her daughter, Carol. And remember that Carol was not a girly girl, so to speak. She dressed in flannel shirts, uh, jeans. She kept her hair short. 
I don't really know what she wore other than the times I've seen her in interviews where she was wearing a man's cotton shirt and it looked really good on her too. And I liked it. Anyway, she didn't wear makeup uh, or engage in normal girl activities according to what was considered normal at the time. Her mother, Marie, wanted her to dress in a refined way, in a ladylike manner, and she wanted her daughter to be a debutante. Now, a debutante, it, for our listeners who do not know, this is a Southern tradition where refined ladies are invited to a debutante, also known as a coming out party. A coming out party is where uh, eligible bachelor young men are of money are paired with debutantes, which are the females. It's all very rodeo, uh, uh, livestock auction-esque to me. But, uh, you know, they're going to put on all the uh, uh, women in the uh, old money society are going to be putting together a cotillion, which is a big party in a big mansion with a lot of good food and probably some alcohol. So that's what was going on. And in her mind, uh, Marie just had to have that for Carol, but no, Carol's not going to do that. Um, I think they still do those today. Yeah. Cause the idea is that your oh, you can daughter bet. is yeah. age, she's of marrying age. So she's coming out into society to get, more. I mean, do they still wear the, the short white gloves with the lace on the yes. on the wrist. Oh, yes. Do they still wear the uh, pretty gowns and the white pearls? Yes. Do they still wear patent leather shoes? Ooh. And do yeah, they still probably. carry a parasol to keep the sunlight out of their off oh, their yeah. skin? Do they still do that? I don't know. I think they do, and I think they use carriages and stuff with horses. Like I think it's all a real thing. Yeah. Which is great for the sense of tradition, but I think um, be greater if you could eliminate a lot of those genders. Okay, you know, I can, I can, I'll give them that. And the reason is, I live in the Pacific Northwest, and there's a lot of fairs all around this area, just like every other agricultural area uh, in the world. I mean, in the United States, and um, do they have lumberjack log? Yeah. Uh, what do they games. call it where you're walking on logs and they have uh, firewood cutting contests. They do all this lumberjack stuff because Seattle was uh, uh, founded on the timber industry yeah. and originally and um, by the white settlers. Yeah. And there was, and also fishing and all that. Do we have celebrations that date back and, and are they, a representation of uh, a former Seattle, yes, because they have machinery that re- does not require men to, you know, do fancy walking on logs in the river to get to the, yeah. to the, you know, to the uh, sawmill, yeah. uh, and they still do it. So I see what you're saying. Yeah, and boy did, <laughs> boy howdy did. I mean, we have dairy princesses out here. There you go. Right. We still do beauty pageants. I mean, it's not a thing. It takes a long time for the social gender norms of a society to shift and die. <laughs> and if people still like that, you know, they should be able to have that. I just, Absolutely. you know, I don't think that you should go around po- poisoning somebody because they didn't turn out to be the kind of daughter you wanted. You and go. that's exactly what was happening because 
Marie wanted her daughter, Carol, to be a debutante, and she refused. And so since that wasn't working out for Marie, she took her successful tool, her most successful tool, out of um, a tool for getting money out of her tool bag, and that was murder by poison and life insurance. Yeah, It's just, you know, Marie did the unthinkable. She began poisoning Carol after taking out a life insurance uh, uh, policy on Carol in 1978. The policy was for $25,000 with a rider for accidental death that had a waiting period. So, you know, she had to wait. She, Carol. So she just started poisoning. Well, can I just say. Excuse me, Marie. Well, I just, I had someone, one of the investigators, like, ask this question in an interview and I, it never even dawned on me, but I think it's one of the most important questions for me. Why would a parent take out a life insurance policy on their child when the entire structure of parent-child is intended for you to not outlive the child, but for the child to outlive you? So what is the, in what universe does it make total sense to take out any life insurance policy on your child? Right? Well, yeah, I can probably answer that not very well. And I could be wrong. <laughs> Readers uh, or listeners, please let me know. But there are some life insurance policies that are like savings accounts, and you can cash them in later. Oh. So uh, if you're buying a life insurance policy on your child, most people who do that are doing it for an investment that they then borrow from mm-hmm. as the child becomes college age oh. and on and on and on. And then the child can uh, keep that life insurance policy uh, in adulthood and have that. So I think there are some structures that do make sense, Okay, but that's not what Carol was doing. Wow. That really leans on that unconditional love guarantee in a parent-child bond relationship, which we know is not a guarantee necessarily. <laughs> it's supposed to be, but it's not. Most people are not going to be going to a life insurance agent and saying, is there a good reason that I should have my child insured? Right. And then that life insurance agent is going to expound on the, you know, the benefit, uh, the equity that you can build into a life insurance policy on behalf of your child. No, most people don't think about life insurance policies for their children because they they have to consider the death of the child and most parents are not willing or interested in doing that. Yeah. It's not a natural thought. No, not at all. Boy, that's yeah, what a weird, you know, all financial systems to me are really weird, but that that one's right up there. Oof, it is up there. <laughs> Most people don't even have the, the discretionary income to be thinking about something like that with their child. I mean, it's a great They're way to pay about for college. I will admit that. that if you're a financial person, maybe. that sounds like a great way to bank your your money towards a college account in the future. But geez Louise, I don't like it at all. It's totally uncomfortable. No, yeah. You know, I, if I was going to save money for somebody's education, I would save the money I might invest the money. I might put it in a CD that would come right. due later. Or I don't know what I would do, but I know that I wouldn't even think of life insurance. Yeah, that's But weird. Carol already, she's got it in her head. Death and life insurance that's equals weird. me on a shopping trip. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> so anyway, she took her, she, this accidental death policy, death rider means that 25,000, if it's like an accidental death, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, would be increased if it became an accidental death oh, uh, over time. And uh, so Carol was kind of hanging out, waiting for that right or two blossom. And um, so she had to wait a little while. She started giving Carol little doses, just little doses of her poison. And Carol did begin experiencing nausea. And she was admitted to the emergency room several times. And a year passed with this going on. And um, after the rider kicked in on the insurance policy, Marie started giving Carol injections that she claimed would alleviate the nausea. However, the symptoms only worsened, and Carol's um, uh, Carol's enduring numbness in her extremities continued to worsen. But medical tests found no disease, Caroline. And Carol's physician started thinking that Carol had a psychosomatic illness. And so she had to undergo, she, Carol, had to undergo psychiatric testing at Caraway Methodist Hospital in Birmingham. Okay. That sounds like a brainwashing outfit to me, but she had to go undergo psychiatric testing. Now, here's the kicker. While she was there at the Caraway Methodist Hospital in Birmingham, uh, Carol received two more injections from Marie. But Marie whispered to her, and I don't tell anybody, I just gave you those injections. Creepy. So creepy. So a month after Carol was admitted to the hospital, her physician reported that she was suffering from malnutrition and vitamin deficiencies, adding to a suspicion that he already had begun developing, and that was that she might be experiencing heavy metal poisoning, and that would explain all her symptoms. And hearing this, Marie had Carol discharged from the hospital that afternoon. The minute that the doctor said heavy metal poisoning. The following day, Carol was admitted to the University of Alabama Hospital. Now, you had indicated to me that her brother Mike might have helped Carol figure out that, you know, I think mom is is trying to kill you. Yeah. Um, and I did read somewhere that Mike, whenever he was with his mother, coming home when Frank died, coming home to visit her and Carol, that he would begin to get sick, but then he'd go back to his church yes. in Atlanta and recover. Yeah. At this point in her sort of uh, journey, Marie, I think, was kind of poisoning everybody. She, I don't know if that just was like accidental or a convenience thing, or now she's hooked on it as a habit because she's gotten away with it for so long. But police officers that would come to her home to talk with her about, you know, her husband, they got ill. Uh, Mike started putting it together because like you said, he would come for a reason, leave for a reason. And each of those stays would be long enough to where he's staying, he's getting sick, he's leaving, he's getting better, he's staying. So that pattern starts to emerge for him. And he, I think, was having some issues with his mother or didn't like some of the choices she was making. So he was, they were kind of at odds already. 
And so I think that's where he's starting to put together in his mind. And at one point he did call his sister while she's in the hospital and say, stop letting mom anywhere near you. Don't let her give you anything. Is she giving you things? Like what's going on? So he really was starting to piece it together too. Wow. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. I, I did not know that. And that you know, that just makes me like Mike and Carol so much that they they were in it together with this woman. And they really were. I mean, let's face it. Her strategy, Marie's strategy, was to make sure that her target was in the hospital when they passed away. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she's following her daughter as she moves from hospital to hospital and, you know, injecting her with uh, poison. But then I have to say, Caroline, out of the sky comes a bolt of justice, just a little bolt of justice, which I love when that happens. Um, I mean, you know, the sky is dark, it's foreboding, and then comes a light. And Marie was arrested. And she was arrested not for murder, not for attempted murder. She was arrested for check-kiting. (laughs) <laughs> so she's writing checks that don't have money to back them up. And this is a, something that makes me think that she's not a, as good at killing as she might think she is because some of the kited checks were written to the insurance company that insured Carol's life, and that caused the policy to lapse. That is divine intervention at its finest. Like that is so <laughs> perfect because insurance companies do not mess around with those cutoff dates. Oh, lapse. Sorry. Can't help you. <laughs> I know. Like she, this is where I think Marie starts to become a killing machine and she's killing using a pattern that worked for Frank yeah. and she's not thinking through the possible consequences. Right of details as important as be sure and pay the premiums on this policy and be sure that it's not a kited check. And she just, you know, kind of pooched and pooped in her own nest really is what has happened here. And I'm happy to see it. So university physicians, meanwhile, decided this was the university that was running the hospital where they were starting to think about poison as well. Uh, They decided to concentrate their investigation on the possibility of heavy metal poisoning, noting that Carol's hands and feet were numb. She had a nerve palsy causing drop foot. This is where your foot is just, I guess, sort of paralyzed. Um, And she had lost most of her deep tendon reflexes. Uh, She, Carol, in an interview I saw described it as, I had bone and I had skin, and that is all I had in my legs. Mm. So all of her tendons were just not working anymore uh, because she didn't have hardly any. They were paper thin, I guess. This poor young woman couldn't walk or really do anything for herself, but Carol had an army of scientists at the university working to restore her And I just want to cry that Frank did not get the same, but Carol did. And I'm very happy about that. One major tell was that physicians noticed Aldrich Mee's lines on Carol's nails. And these lines are found in heavy metal poisoning, such as arsenic. And a lot of, 
you know, a lot of um, Agatha Christie uh, and other murder mystery writers will, uh, this is a telltale sign that they use these lines. So they go across your nails from left to right. And, and it's a, just a way of telling whether someone's being poisoned with arsenic. Uh, for forensic tests on samples of her hair were conducted by the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences in October 3rd, 1979, revealing that arsenic levels ranging from over 100 times the normal level close to the scalp to zero times the normal level at the end of the hair shaft were present. And this indicated that Carol... Carol had been given increasingly larger doses of arsenic over a period of four to eight months. Now, remember, the purpose of that was because Marie was waiting for that writer to, now she was focused on the writer. She wasn't focused on, they're going to cancel this if I give them a kited check. So anyway, Caroline police were notified by the hospital of what was going on. And I think that probably what you were talking about with Mike, he probably called the police and said, you need to look at my dad's body too. I believe that that is probably what happened. Um, because that very same day, uh, they started exhuming his body. You know, uh, Marie, part of me, I wonder if like, because they're still in Aniston, Alabama. Yes. I mean, this is this is all the same people they would have potentially gone. Oh, yeah. This is Aniston. This is so that's because when you read the case, you think, geez, just kind of on a whim, they're exhuming all these bodies and they're looking at all because they did. They looked at a neighbor child who had gotten sick once. I mean, I think she was poisoning far more people than we have on record. However, I just think it was like an epiphany the whole town had at the same time. Yes, I mean, certainly uh, Marie should have stuck to marrying a rich man or marrying a man who won't care if you take his salary and your salary too and do things and sleep with bosses and all that. Right. She should she should have she should have stuck with that because she's not as deft in the uh m true murder right. torture and murder. I'm a torture oh, yeah. and murder. Oh, yeah. It's not just murder. It's torture and murder. Anyway, um so they exhumed his body. Tests showed that he had, in various parts of his body, between 10 and 100 times the normal limit. It was concluded then that both Frank and Carol had suffered from chronic arsenic poisoning, poisoning with Frank's poisoning being fatal. So now uh, Marie is going to be detained by police for check kiting and attempted murder. The date is October 9th, 1979. Murder indictment for the murder of her husband, Frank, was about to be added to her rap sheet. But Marie had another trick up her sleeve. Now, I think some devious people are devious in one category, Caroline. Maybe a cover-up of their real financial situation or some other face for the public and I think some devious people have a hard time refraining from lies, even when the truth would be better than a lie. Yeah. And my guess is that Marie Hilly was so used to being devious at this point and so used to having cash flow by ill-gotten gains that that had become her personality. 
I think you're right. I don't think even if she wanted to, she could have stopped. Yeah. I mean, she's she's devious in more than one category. All of the categories, all of the life categories. She's she's, she's devious in the devious category that expands all deviousness known to mankind. That's I mean, right. <laughs> she, in other words, maybe she can't help herself. It's That's part it. of who she is, or it is who or is who she is, and it certainly is who she, what she does. Marie's eye for the finer things in life was so ingrained that she never reached a point in her maturity as a human being that when it comes to money, there will never be enough. I think everybody is figures that out. Oh, yeah. Even rich people figure that out. Oh, every good um, documentary autobiography or biography documentary has that line in it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not it's not the money that you want. It's the getting the money that you want yeah. and having the money that you want and go going and getting and having more and more and more. So money to do what she wanted it to do to have the finer things in life. Mm -hmm. um, there was never going to be enough for her because it wasn't really just about that. Yeah. If I told her the best things in life are not things, she would probably assure me and kill me, Caroline. Probably. <laughs> and then you, and then you're not being who she wants you to be, and she's probably going to insure you and kill you I too. Know. I just, it's another like insure kill. It really was a scheme for her, but she wasn't. And it, but this is to me, this, she just is so unique because she's not really a black widow. She's not really any of these other things we can apply to it. You're right. This just became a way of life for her that she almost blindly chose. And it just worked for her in a way. She was able to do it. She kept doing it. And in my mind, I'm thinking now about all the people in her life from her parents, probably friends, teachers, whoever. I don't know. But they definitely these husbands. No one's saying no to her. No one is depriving her and forcing her to go through the de de deprivation in order to acquire the knowledge that, oh, it didn't matter in the end anyway, right? Which is what helps us be a little less materialistic. <laughs> I think so. I think we all get to a point in life, maturity as a human being, we become more rounded in our thinking that, so what is life all about? And we realize that pursuit of money, drinking alcohol, shoplifting, shooting up heroin, all of the things that we can name that people do to try to uh, have that feeling of completeness, that is a feeling that is not uh, sustainable in every category for uh, it's just that's not how human beings are put together right. we're we're put together with range with a range of emotions that pop up for no cause sometimes I'm yes. just saying that's my reality and in horrible timing I think yes, more often than not of the above <laughs> I mean but she's she has decided to not go the route of um, examining life and uh, figuring it out and then finding out what her highest and best purpose in this life would be. She's, she's, cause she's having none of that. No. And I don't even think this is about outfits and cars anymore. No. I think this is about what she feels competent at doing and she wants to repeat it over and over and over again. There you go. Yeah. That's just, you know, you're right. She's just, in other words, you know, I'm going to call her now. I'm not going to call her some things, but I'm going to say I believe she's a she's become a shot a hollow person. Yeah, who is also a killer. 
robot, who was robotic. probably killing just to stuff her internal void. Yeah. Uh, that stuff and money can buy some stuff, but also killing is buying some stuff for her to make her feel whole. She's not whole, she's hollow. I think you're right. Yeah. That's why it's a little bit different than all the other killers that we sort of see in these veins. The love them, ensure them, kill them. The, you know, she's not, I just, she's just a little different. And I think you're right. I think at some point she hollowed out and this just became the robotic thing that makes her, that gets her enough of that good feeling. The dopamine hit. She's just going to repeat it every day. Absolutely. And, you know, some killers, they love to watch their prey die right in their hands. They love to see the suffering because they're, um, they are uh, a sociopath. They enjoy the, uh, the killing. She did not enjoy watching other people die because remember, she wanted them in the hospital. She wants them away. She's putting something in their food and in their arms and, you know, and in their drinks to make them die later when she does not. So it's not necessarily that she likes the power of uh, watching them die and playing God. She likes what happens when they die. Yeah. the money. Uh, She feels satisfaction or maybe a satisfied revenge. So now she, um, she's just hollow. And uh, you would think that her crime spree would be over, but you would be wrong because Marie Hilly is now ready to commit her next crime, which is escape from the law. (laughs) Now, we already said that Marie was arrested for check kiting and attempted murder of her daughter, but Marie did make bail. And then on November 19th, a burglary occurred at the home of Marie's aunt. And the occupant's car was stolen. So in other words, the aunt's car was stolen, as well as some clothes and an overnight bag. Investigators found a note in the house reading, do not call police. We will burn you out if you do. We found what we needed and we will not bother you again. (laughs) the sweetest. That is the most polite note I've ever. Lord have mercy. (laughs) So she's driving around now in her mother in her aunt's car, and she's got her aunt's clothes, and she's got the overnight bag to put them in. Anyway, two months later, on January 11th, 1980, Marie was indicted in absentia for Frank's murder. So here's a sort of chilling tidbit about this time of Marie's escape from the law. Uh, And Caroline, you alluded to it earlier. Subsequent to Frank's being exhumed and Marie being indicted in absentia for murder, investigators found that both her mother and her mother-in-law, Carrie Hilly, had significant, but not fatal, traces of arsenic in their systems when they died. Uh, So they may have died of natural causes, but she was in the process of murdering them is what I take that to mean. Yeah. Yeah. And then the remains of Sonia Marcel Gibson, an 11 year old friend of Carol's, this is mm-hmm. a girl you were talking about, who had died of indeterminate causes in 1974, were also exhumed and examined. And they were found to contain a normal amount of arsenic, but there was enough suspicion yeah. to have her exhumed to find out. Yeah. So 
Gibson was just one of many neighborhood children who had fallen ill after drinking beverages that they had been given during their visits to the Hilly household. Two police officers, as you pointed out, who had been dispatched to a domestic disturbance at the Hilly household, also reported coming down with nausea and stomach cramps after drinking coffee from Marie when she offered it to him. Yeah. So holy ice in veins, Caroline. <laughs> she had perfected so she's, this poison she, thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, she's thinking that, that she's working in a tea house, I guess, and that this is, she's just, you know, spooning out the tea. It's just so chilling to think that Marie was a serial killer before the term was even invented. Yeah. So maybe she became a serial killer motivated by killing now. I don't know. Well, I think there's something to the detachment that you were talking about earlier about how, you know, most of our killers we talk about, there's an intimacy sort of, you know, if they're strangling, if they're shooting, if they're whatever, they're in proximity to their victim and they're holding power over. She has this weird other thing where she enjoys poisoning people at random, at random. Well, I think that she maybe was poisoning people who got on her nerves or yeah. she did not she did not like the intrusion of the police so now right. she's going to have revenge so maybe there are two reasons she murders to get money and also exacting revenge yeah having a little bit of that sort of to like a what is that kind of it's just like a a big bird in the you know middle finger up in the face of this person like okay sure come on in and tell me all about how my daughter is mean to your daughter or whatever it might be right have some pie while you're here, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) tell me more. (laughs) Well, she definitely has ice in her veins and she, I'm willing to believe that she tried to poison many, many people to death or just to make them have a stomach ache. And she knew how to use this arsenic, you know, she knew how to use it. That's what I think. Um, It's creepy. I mean, it's creepy to think that because I, I get very scared of the poison aspect because, you know, and then there have been cases here in Washington of the, aspirin bottle tampering lots of people died oh, then yeah. you know i yep. mean it's a scary thing so that kind of mind where you think it's funny or you you know that's scary to me <laughs> yeah yeah she um I, we can't say psychoanalyze her because she's uh we're not qualified but it's easy to see who through her behavior that it's not just about money yeah now, it might be that she hates anybody that does not give her her way. Yeah. Like she's taken a nap and this child has woken her up. Right. So you took something away from me. I'm going to take something away from you. Yeah. I'm going to give you some poison. You're going to have a bad few days. Yeah. But you, but I mean, which doesn't really correlate in my mind, right? Like, okay, then with serial pain, killers. I'm not going to try and kill yeah. them. But when you poison people so long with so much success, which she clearly had been, I mean, her own mother, she's probably doing it since she was in her teens. I mean, who knows? Crazy. It's crazy. crazy. After her escape, which authorities are certain was provisioned by her aunt's house burglary, which included clothes and a car, as I said, police and the FBI launched a massive manhunt, but Marie Hilly remained a fugitive for a little more than three years. So here comes her next crime, Caroline, and I'm just not going to number them anymore because there's so many of them. She's killed so many people. She's killed or tried to kill so many people. Her next crime was impersonation, including falsifying documents when she got married. So Marie was on the run in November 1980 and under the alias of Robbie Hannon, 
Marie traveled to Florida and met a man named John Greenleaf Holman III. They lived together for more than a year before marrying on May 29, 1981, at which point she took his last name. The couple moved to New Hampshire. By all accounts, John Holman was mightily in love with his wife, Robbie. Oh, my God. He doted on her. That's a good move on your part, John. (laughs) And he was vulnerable to her many lies. Love always believes the beloved, I guess. Yeah. Love is blind. Love Love is blind. Late in the summer of 1982, Marie, masquerading as Robbie, left New Hampshire. She told her husband, John Holman, that she needed to attend to family business and she needed to see some doctors about an illness that she was having. And, you know, she was telling people at work that she didn't feel good either and she had a mysterious illness. And she was telling people at work that she had a twin. She was feigning an illness and told her gullible husband that she wanted to be in charge of her own treatment. So off she went. And during this time, she traveled to Florida and Texas using the alias Terry Martin, an imaginary twin sister. I mean. Now, during this trip, Marie called Holman as Terry. Hey, hey, John Holman. Is this John Holman? You don't know me. We've never met. My name is Terry And I need to inform you that your dearly beloved Robbie, my sister, died in Texas, saying there was no need for him to claim the body because it had been donated to medical science. Now, this I did not see until I read it about Marie. (laughs) Now, what is the purpose of this? I don't understand the purpose of this. No, I agree with you. I think that's the great mystery because unless there's an insurance policy on this Robbie character she has created... Mm. there's no reason to kill off Robbie in such a elaborate scheme of twindom. Unless she just wanted to leave John and didn't have the heart to hurt him. I mean, maybe she can fall in love. I don't know. But she, that's not what happened. No, that she came back. Then why come back? Why just, I mean, just make the weird phone call and leave. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But after getting to know Terry over the phone, Holman expressed an interest in meeting her, John Holman. She agreed saying he needed to put, uh, uh, Robbie's death behind him. And Caroline, you and I both know that it's not possible to put the death of a loved one behind, behind oneself. So that was just a stupid thing to say. Yeah. But, you know, that, you know, she's pretending to part. She's pretending to have lost her twin sister. And she is having to tell her husband that your wife is uh, dead. But I'm alive and I'm going to come see you. So yeah. in November of and 1982. Can, well, and she, you can't see the death, dead body of my twin sister because, you know, I've just donated it to science already. Right. Yeah. She's thought weird. of everything, hasn't she? After changing her hair color and losing weight, Marie returned to New Hampshire and reunited with Holman, posing as his deceased wife's sister. And, you know... The fact that she is changing her hair color and her body size and shape, that tells me that she was preparing to sleep with him and just take over. Now, why would she do that, Caroline? What the is going on? I don't get it. I don't either. I don't get it. I don't get the motive here. I guess, and I don't see a scheme here. Like, what's the... (laughs) I don't. I don't either. 
it's just like maybe she's enjoying, maybe she's decided I'm not going to murder anybody more. I got to come up with something that's as satisfying as murder and maybe a grandiose uh, level of deceit and uh, impersonation of other people and all that. So anyway, a, 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 an obituary for Robbie Holman appeared in a New Hampshire newspaper. Uh, and uh, that was because John wanted to have an obituary of his wife in the paper where he lived. Uh, but this aroused suspicion because, okay, let me let me just tell you what was really going on. You know, Terry, John Holman's first wife, who is actually Marie, was working as a secretary in various businesses and so forth, just like she always had. And where she worked in New Hampshire, half the office really liked her and took to her. The other half of the office thought something's up with this woman. These wild stories about having a twin sister and having a secret disease and don't tell anybody and I'm going to have to travel and go be with my, oh, my sister is died and I can't come into work anymore and these elaborate things and so some of these today we would call these people who doubted her terry who's also who's really marie we would call them citizen sleuths yeah because they called the police yeah and they said something hinky is going on here we don't know what it is but uh when that obituary that the husband wanted john holman wanted that uh when that hit the newspaper, the police were notified by the citizen sleuths where she used to work, and the police were unable to verify any of the information that it contained. John Holman's co-workers also had suspicion about his new sister-in-law, who was concerned, and they were concerned that defalcation may be at play here. Now, I had to look that up, Caroline. Yeah, what does it mean? Defalcation means like financial wrongdoing. Oh, like so There's death, some like, kind um, of a scheme going on here. Okay. You're trying to defraud someone probably. Like, yes. Yeah. Like, okay. yes. Um, and I love it that these coworkers who turned into what we call today citizens uh, sleuths for the love of a dear coworker who was Terry yeah. But they did the half that turned her in didn't really love Terry. They thought that is Terry. It was just crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's drama. I think even the the ones that liked her thought the same thing. This is too weird. Something's weird. Possibly. This is too weird. Let's just get to the bottom of it. We need yeah. to get to the bottom of it. A detective with the New Hampshire State Police surmised that the woman living as first as Robbie, then as Terry, were no, first as yeah, first as Robbie, then as Terry, were one in the same. I'm starting to think I I can't even keep it straight. <laughs> John Holman's concerned co-workers discovered that the Medical Research Institute of Texas, where Robbie's body was supposedly handed over for study, was non-existent, as was the church that eulogized her death. So while John Holman's workplace was audited and no embezzlement was found, so they don't think he's embezzling and he's in charge. You know, so they were wondering, was he in on it? Oh, I see. Is this something he's doing with yeah. this Terry and and so they're just trying to figure out why the lie, right? I mean, Jeez. why? <laughs> I know, I know. 
So they fi figured out nothing was going on. But they still believed that Terry Martin was possibly a fugitive bank robber. First, they thought it was a fugitive bank robber named Carol Manning. That was later disproved. So they went down one rabbit hole. And, um, or they thought maybe she was wanted on outstanding charges. So they were hot on the real, they were hot on the trail, Caroline, but they were not on hot on the real trail. That's funny to me. Is what uh, yeah, other they, women about that would be distracting in their rap sheets. <laughs> what a time. In the meantime, Terry, twin sister of Robbie, who's also Marie, had taken a secretarial job in nearby Brattleboro, Vermont. And it was there that Terry, a.k.a. Robbery, a.k.a. Marie Hillis, was finally arrested. Authorities knew there was fraud going on somewhere. They didn't know where. And while being interrogated by Vermont state troopers, Marie confessed that she was wanted in Alabama on check-kiting charges, and she divulged her real name. So they contacted Alabama authorities to confirm this, and while also disclosing, you know, they said, yeah, she's a check kiter, but she's also wanted for murder and attempted murder. Mm -hmm. This would be for Frank's murder and Carol's attempted murder. Marie was extradited to Alabama to stand trial. She was quickly convicted, quickly convicted, and sentenced to life in prison for her husband's murder and 20 years for attempting to kill her daughter. But Caroline, her criminal history was not concluded yet. And that's why I failed to continue numbering her crimes. Because she escaped again. <laughs> and uh, I have to say that Marie Hillis is a mighty, strong-willed woman who never gives up. I'm going to give her that. She oh, never gives I... up. She really likes drama. Yeah. She's creating drama. Oh, Maybe yeah. that's what she's addicted to, not killing. I don't know. I'm going to point out here that she did not try to kill John Holman. She's living with him. Yeah, she didn't insure him and kill him. So, so I think she likes this big, elaborate, Herculean level effort of deceit. I do. Yeah. Drama. Although I wonder if she regrets not bringing more cookies into the office. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline, I usually like, you're so funny. I usually like people uh you know who are tenacious like this uh that marie hillis is a mighty strong woman she never gives up and i i do like people like that and for a woman grow uh who was born in the great depression i really want to like marie i want to blame it on the depression but she's a killer and i just can't yeah and her last chapter really speaks to both her cunning her patience for the long game and her vulnerability. And I say vulnerability because she's a human being and she has screwed up. She screwed up a lot of times. Oh, yeah. But this was her biggest screw up, coming up with this fantasy, weird, identity-switching, burial, obituary, yeah. eulogy, oh, and giving the body to science thing. For no reason. I cannot think of a reason to do that. And that's the big, like you said, and for what? Because everything else she did is also outlandish and really weird, long gamey stuff. But you can see the purpose. There were insurance claims, then file, money was whatever. But for this, what were you getting out of this besides? Well, all I can say is she maybe she's just got an extremely high 
sensation seeking aspect to her personality, mm-hmm. which is part of that uh, the the cluster B of personality disorders where you've got narcissism and you've got factitious disorder and you've got any personal uh, any um, social behavior and you've got any social uh, personality all of those uh, things that can live lead to sociopathy and sociopathy and murder and serial killing and all that high sensation seeking is up there. with um, that cluster. I'm not saying she's in that cluster because I'm not a doctor, but I I know that she's got a personality trait that she is shared with these other people who have uh, been diagnosed that way. So so when I say she's human and that's her vulnerability, she can't help but screw up. That's what I'm talking about. Like she gets wrapped up in her own sensation-seeking Drama, payback, which is look at this lie that I'm able to perpetuate on these people in New Hampshire. She, that to her is just as good as being part of uh, the upper crust. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, Marie began serving her sentence in 1983 at Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women in Watumpka, Alabama, a maximum security prison. And due to her clerical career, she was often assigned to perform paperwork. She was considered a quiet and model prisoner. And this good behavior earned her several one-day passes from prison, from which she returned as scheduled. At Carolina, I I have no understanding of a (laughs) maximum security prison that allows day passes. I mean, all we can say, it was that that. I don't know, funky, wild, and free era of the 70s and 80s. <laughs> Where we yeah. just, I don't know. Because you're right. How do you get in maximum security and ever see anything outside the doors? You're maximum secu- we're maximum security, and we will not give you much more than a one-day pass, and you better come back. And Where if you, you do, we're going to put day? you in ultra-maximum yeah. where... You have to wait a year to get another pass. So anyway, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but we in don't February, two one day passes in a year. <laughs> in February 1987, she had been given so many one day passes that nobody saw her as a person who would ever escape. Oh, she was given a three day pass in February 1987 to visit John Holman, who had moved to Anniston from. New Hampshire, God help you, John, (laughs) to be closer to his wife. I mean, he really loved his lying, cheating, stealing, murdering wife, Caroline. Well, he had to after everything that's obviously come to light for him. Unless unless maybe he's believing, maybe she's telling him, no, they've got it all wrong and he's believing it. Who knows? Love is blind, as we said. So February 1987, Marie was given this pass. And she, to be with John, and they spent the day at the Aniston Hotel. And when Holman left the next day for a few hours, she disappeared, leaving behind a note asking for his forgiveness. And to his credit, John Holman promptly alerted police. Her escape prompted an inquiry into Alabama's furlough policy as well. (laughs) So, Marie, you did something good in your life, Marie. (laughs) I'm sure Marie changed a lot of policies (laughs) along her way. Yeah, we don't do that anymore. Alabama is now known as we don't do that anymore. (laughs) Anyway, four days after she vanished from the motel, Marie was found delirious on the back porch of a house in Aniston. 
The woman who found Marie described her appearance as scary, stating that she was dirty with mud on her face and she had long fingernails. The woman alerted police, who then summoned paramedics. Uh, Marie was conscious at the scene, but lost consciousness while being transported to a nearby hospital for treatment. And upon arrival, she suffered a heart attack. Doctors attempted to revive her, but were unsuccessful, and she was pronounced dead three and a half hours after being found. The coroner believed that she had been crawling around on her hands and knees in the woods, drenched by four days of frequent rain and exposed to temperatures that dropped to around freezing, and her final cause of death was attributed to hypothermia and exposure. Okay. Um, what a ride. Caroline, <laughs> uh, her humanity got to her, and she died of exposure. And I think that's ironic. Crawling on her hands and knees in the dirt. I mean, just such a far cry from. So the she sort of got a poetic uh, justice. It's uh, in a way. Yeah. But I mean, I, here's what I want to do to end this uh, yeah. episode today, Caroline. I want to brag on Carol Hillis for a minute before we sign off. Carol, she loved her father who died when she was only 15 years old, Caroline. She and her dad, Frank, went to see Auburn University football together, and they bonded over football and other things that he involved her in. To this day, she can still feel her dad beside her when she goes nuts at an Auburn football game. She said that it took her years to walk again. And after her mother attempted to murder her, when she visited her mother in jail, Carol was in a wheelchair. And her mother asked her, how are you doing, honey? And she looked and she nodded at her mother. And she also non-verbally gave her mother that look that was a non-verbal message to her mother. And she said, I'm, I'm better now. <laughs> Carol replied sarcastically. Carol Hilly and all the other victims of Marie Hilly May you continue healing as the years roll on by. And you survived a very wily and very unusual killer, Marie Hillary. Mm-hmm. Hiller. So that ends our episode today, Caroline. And boy, it was a doozy, and I love it. Thanks for uh, pointing it out. And it was fun researching her and then fun what you came up to find out what you came up with and what I came up with. And I feel like we gave her kind of a, a nice, warm welcome, given her history. Yes. Well, it's, because we're, yeah. It's a, I don't think she was a serial killer. She was probably addicted to drama. Yes. I think she just became addip- addicted to the coping strategies that unfortunately had worked for her because they were things like poison, murder, deceit, um, you know, sleeping with boss. It, like it just was the wrong road, but, but no one told her that. And it was, it gave her everything she wanted. So, I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, it was Mother Nature. Yeah. That told her that. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You don't mess with Mother Nature. That's so true. She wins every time. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode is researched 
written and narrated by Bridget and Caroline, produced by Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, and books about our subject, interviews with people involved, and so forth. Episodes are aired every other week. If you like us, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about us in person and by social media. These things help us get found by new listeners, and that's how we will grow. And uh, we thank you so much. We appreciate you. And one other thing, don't forget to live and let live. Bye-bye, Caroline. Bye-bye.